Also, the husband does not have authority on his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement, for a time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not, if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you as the author, Lord, of, of this book and the one that it points to. And we know, Lord, that there's nothing that you've written here that isn't um, for your glory and honor and for our good. And we do want you to be exalted as we have sung and that um, our hearts would be in all things, Lord, surrendered to you that you would have the preeminence and the glory and the honor in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. <clears throat> well, we've, um, seems like it's been a long time since we were last here in 1 Corinthians, but I appreciate um, Satish standing in for me last week. That was not planned, but I didn't know he would be available and I just so deeply appreciate him and, and the, every opportunity I've had over many years now to hear him speak. And so I um, long for that for you, and the elders were in agreement with that. So I appreciate Satish standing in um, and speaking to us last week. Um, we we're working through 1 Corinthians, and, and I have to tell you, um, I'm not alone in this. Any preacher would say that if there's one chapter in the Bible that he would prefer not to preach on, it would be 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, it's um, a, a chapter that is, is very, very needed, um, but one that we all have very strong feelings about the subjects that Paul brings up in this, sub, in this chapter. I feel that it can basically be um, divided around three topics here. And the, the first nine verses... Paul seems to be addressing um, people who are having questions about the role of, of sexual intimacy. Some of those people are single. Um, the, the bulk of them that he's addressing are married. And then, beginning in verse 10, he addresses only married people. And it seems to be people who are married who are questioning um, whether they should stay married or not. So they're having thoughts about divorce. And then the last part of the chapter, the last half of the chapter really, and it's a long chapter, 40 verses, he seems to be addressing people who are not yet married, but they are in a committed relationship, probably engaged. And because of the, of the difficulties going on at that time, they're really questioning whether or not they should follow through and get married or should they just break off the engagement or what they should do. So they're having questions about um, whether they should pursue marriage or not, having already been committed to it. So this is a very practical chapter, um, and, um, and again, one that, that um, is ripe for misunderstanding and for controversy, and I'm just really trusting God's grace here to lead us, and that, um, and that we glean from this in truth what God has said. You'll remember that the last part of chapter 6, Paul spoke about sexual immorality, and he makes the point very, very um, clearly, powerfully in that chapter that um, when two people are joined together sexually, that every aspect of their being is joined together, that you become one body, soul, and spirit. The scripture describes that as one flesh. But so that we would know that it's not just a union of two bodies physically, but it's a union of the entire person, Paul likens it to the union that we have with Christ when we place our faith in Him. And he says, when a person places his faith in Christ, the two, God and man, become one spirit. But we know when we become one spirit with God, He doesn't just get our spirits, He gets our entire person. 
That's why it says in verse 20 of chapter 6, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So even though it is a one spirit relationship, it involves our body and not just our spirit. So when you are in a one flesh relationship, it involves not just your body, but also your spirit. The whole person is involved. We don't call it a one spirit relationship when it's a sexual relationship with another person, even though it is a joining of spirits, because we are flesh and God is spirit. And so God, Paul's using that terminology to distinguish man from God. But his point is that in both unions, the sexual union and the spiritual union, the entire person is united with the other. It's not just one aspect of your being. And that's what makes sexual sin different from every other sin. He doesn't say worse than all other sins, but he says it is in a category by itself. And I believe because he's saying of the union that exists between these two people when they have come together sexually. And so having addressed the issue of sexual immorality, the question is now, what is Paul talking about in chapter 7? And so he begins here with Two Greek words now concerning, in the Greek it's peri-day, and, and um, folks are, are, as far as I can tell, they are in agreement that whenever at least Paul uses those two words, he is introducing a new topic. He is changing subjects. So he's not talking about sexual immorality per se here. He's not talking about frequenting the prostitutes of the temple that was there in Corinth. But what is he talking about? And so, very plainly, as it's written in the New American Standard and in the King James, it says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That is the literal Greek translation. That is not the translation of the NIV, at least the, the older versions of the NIV. They would write, It is good for a man not to get married. That is not even remotely close to what the original Greek is. The ESV and many of the modern translations today would say that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Again, that is an interpretation that is not the literal translation. We need to understand that. And so why did all these different translations not take it literally? Well, I can't speak for them, but I, I, I would surmise it's because they think that it has to be something other than what it literally means. And so he says, the things about which you wrote. So first, they aren't necessarily, and I appreciate just reading, you're studying up on this again, and I came across one guy who said, he knows, everybody says that we assume that they had a list of questions that they wrote to Paul, and Paul is answering their questions. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say they had a list of questions. It just says they wrote about a list of things. Knowing the mindset of these Corinthians, that they're not all impressed with Paul, and they pretty much have, are in the habit of running him down and dismissing his ministry, it seems more likely they were not asking questions of him, but they were informing him. And so they had some things that they were telling him, not things that they were questioning him about. And it could be, it seems very likely, that there were two extreme elements in the Corinthian church. There was one element that just says, you know, you can even go to a prostitute if you want, and it's not a problem. And there was another element that was saying, you know, you shouldn't even touch a woman. Now, we know the propensity of humanity to go to extremes. And so I kind of like that interpretation, that handling of it, because on the one extreme... You can go to a prostitute. And Paul says, no, you can't. And on the other extreme, you can't even touch a woman. And so Paul says, let's talk about that. Now, I think there is this, obviously a sense which Paul is not saying, this is what you have said. They have probably said that. But there is a sense in which he is agreeing with them. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Because he doesn't say, this is what, I'm, I'm quoting you now. He just says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. So what can, can that possibly mean? Good to not get married? No. Because marriage is a good thing. 
good not to have sexual relations with a woman you're not married to? He's already addressed that. So why is he coming back to it? So this is where I, you know, I, I have to be careful because I, I know of no Bible teacher, no commentary that takes this literally. And they, so 100% of who I've read have said touch is a euphemism for sexual relations. And then they try to prove that. And so I've looked at how they've tried to prove it. And I'm not convinced, personally. The best um, reference to touch being a euphemism for sexual relations is this author who says, the idiom to touch a woman occurs nine times in Greek antiquity, ranging across six centuries and a variety of writers, and in every other instance without ambiguity, it refers to having sexual intercourse. So this guy says there are six, I'm sorry, nine occasions in extra-biblical Greek literature where touch can mean sexual relations, ranging across six centuries. What he doesn't tell us, I wished he had, does that include the first century? Or is it something that starts in the second or third centuries? Because if this is a word that's being used that way in the second or third century, you can't put it onto Scripture. But when I look at Scripture and look up all the references to touch in the Bible, there are no, absolutely zero, references to touch in the New Testament that can be taken as meaning sexual. Zero. And there are, there's only one instance where touch is used in the New Testament where it could possibly mean harm. And that would be in 1 John chapter 5, where John writes and says that the evil one will not be able to touch him. The one who is born of God, the, the one, but he who has been born of God, God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. That is the only perhaps non-literal use of touch in all the New Testament, the only one. And it has nothing to do with a sexual connotation. In the Old Testament, there are two references that people, I'm going to kind of get in technical, a little bit in the weeds here, but I just want you to understand. There is a place in Proverbs where it says that the man who, um, who goes into another man's wife um, shall not shall be, um, so is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her will not go unpunished. And so commentators would say, there you go, a use of touch that has the, the euphemism for sexual relations. Maybe. But I can tell you, if I saw a man touching my wife in my home without my presence, it doesn't matter if it's gone any further. I'm upset. Wouldn't you be? And, you know, it's like I've told the students, you know, it's just, a, you know, if, if I saw my wife walking down the beach holding hands with a man, I would be upset. All they've done is touched. So there's not necessarily a sexual connotation to this word touch. It can mean, and typically does, literally touch. In Genesis chapter 20, um, the king of Pharaoh has taken Abraham's wife, Sarah. And then God afflicts his household with, with um, a plague. And then he says, what's going on? And God says, you've taken another man's wife. And Pharaoh says, I didn't even touch her. And God says, and I didn't allow you to touch her. And once again, we have to infer that that is sexual when in fact it could have just simply literally meant touch, like all other examples of touch in the Bible. So what I'm saying here is what we're trying to avoid in these various translations, where we call it sexual relations or we call it marriage, what we're trying to clearly avoid is the idea that Paul is saying all touch of a man to a woman is wrong. And I understand that because Paul is not saying all touch is wrong. So that would be reading into Scripture to come up with that kind of conclusion. What Paul is saying is it's good for a man 
not to touch a woman. But there's a good place for touch. There is a touch is not all bad. Healthy individuals need to be, you need to be touched to be healthy, to grow up mature in a, in a healthy fashion. We all know this to be true. Children need to be touched. They need to be embraced. They need to be, to need to be shown physical affection. There is a place for that. We come together as the body of Christ, and, and quite appropriately, I believe, we, we give hugs to each other. We shake hands. We hug each other. There is a good and right place for it. Some would say, well, this means touch in the sense of to incite, to provoke, to stimulate a woman. Well, good luck figuring out when that happens. I mean, really. Because if a woman is already inclined in her heart toward a man, and the man doesn't know it, he has no idea. But she likes him. He doesn't know it. And he just walks by and puts his hand on her shoulder and says, excuse me, as he tries to get around. And she's the rest of the day, all she's thinking about is what? He touched me. We're going to get married. <laughs> and he doesn't even know what her name is. They don't, I mean, he, he, he doesn't even know. He's clueless. And so can you really know? Can a man really know every time that that touch incites her? When the same touch with anyone else would not have done anything. And so I'm not comfortable with saying this is touch means to inflame, it means to incite. Again, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Maybe it can mean that, way, way, mean that somewhere, someplace, but I see absolutely no instance of it in Scripture. Touch means touch. But he's not saying it's all wrong. But he is saying, be careful. And isn't that just wise? We understand that. Be careful here. This is an area where you need to be responsible, and you need to be thinking, and you need to be careful. And men especially need to hear this. I'll never forget, man, it just blew my doors off. I was, I think I was a, uh, was a junior in college, and, and there was this old, old, she must have been 50, missionary that came, <laughs> that came through school. And I mean, I'm just thinking, she is so old, she's so, she doesn't even, she, this woman's never had a sexual thought in her life. And, and, and she, she preaches, she, not preaches, she, she, wit, she, she witnessed, gave her testimony in chapel. And then that night, completely, for, you know, we all forgot about it. We don't listen to missionaries. And, and um, when they came, you know, we were not very spiritual Bible college students. And so that night, the dean of men, he pulled the fire alarm and emptied out all three men's dorms. And he's got us all standing out in the parking lot. And, and he, says, he says, gentlemen, now that I've ruined your evening for study, um, this missionary lady is is over here in the lounge, and I've got cookies and refreshment, and I would really strongly encourage you to go over there and listen to what she has to say. So we thought, well, all right. So we all packed in there. We all sat around the floor, two or three hundred of us, and, and, um, and she started talking. From this verse, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. I'd never in my life heard a woman talk about this. Guys get together and talk about it. We go, well, that's stupid. What's that about, you know? <laughs> but this is where, in the inspiration of God, and God's wisdom, he knows men need to be told this. And this woman is telling us from a woman's perspective what it means to be touched. And we're sitting there going, you've got to be kidding. And she says, I'm a surgeon. And, I, and she says, I have literally had my hands in the chest cavity of a patient, and there's a doctor on the other side of the table with his hands in the same chest cavity, and all I can think about is, he touched me. And I'm going, no way. I mean, you've got your hands, and so, you're, you're handling somebody's heart. And all you can think about is the doctor across the table just bump hands with me? I can't understand that. But she says, I'm a woman. And women respond to touch. She says she could be in a pickup truck, and as a woman and as a missionary, she was expected to be in the front seat. And any other man that had any kind of, of level of, of position, he was expected to be in the front seat. And there's no air conditioning, and so the windows were always rolled down. And you'd go down these old dusty roads, and, 
And, and the dust, every time you came to a stop for a pothole, all the dust comes pouring in. It says you're sweaty and you're covered in dust, but there'd be four people sitting in the cab of a pickup, sometimes five. So it was impossible not to touch. And they stink, they're sweating, they're covered in dust. And she says, and all I can think about is, I'm being touched by a man. And again, we Bible college students are going, wow. It's pretty significant. I was glad she spoke so candidly to us. On the other hand, a woman, I think, in a, in a very similar fashion, has real trouble understanding how a man can co- so quickly respond to the visual. And women get together and talk about that. And they go, that is stupid. What is wrong with these men? little bit of whatever, and they're just going, and these men, are they all just perverts? What is wrong with them? And guys get together, we go, what's wrong with us? I mean, really, I mean, what, what? because they obviously, something must be, the women all think something's wrong with us. God, I believe this is God's design. And Paul is so clear about constantly bringing us back to the creation design that God has for men and women. And it's not culture. Culture has different things to say about touch, and culture has different things to say about modesty. We understand that. But God's design, I believe, is that women respond more readily to touch than men do. And men respond more readily to the visual than what women do. That is not to say men don't respond to touch. That is not to say that women don't respond to the visual. But generally speaking, women are more responsive to touch than men are, and men are more responsive to the visual than what women are. And God knows that, obviously. He created us. And it's a good thing. It's God's design. And so Paul, I believe, is, just, is coming back to this. And he's, so it's, he, it's not about sexual relations or marriage. It's about touch. There's a good and right place for it. He's not forbidding all touch. But I believe he is saying to the men, it's good to not touch a woman. Be careful here. Just be careful. Then he says, so we took a long time with that, but I felt like it was necessary. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So now he's talking about getting married. And so he's saying marriage is... Again, by God's design, intended to be, in part, a safeguard against immorality, sexual immorality. And it is. It should be. It is also, obviously, he's saying, to be monogamous. One man, one woman, and also heterosexual. So he's just said a lot in that little bitty verse. Marriage is a safeguard against immorality. Marriage is between one man and one woman. Not man on man, woman on woman, and not three women for one man. So in that little verse, he has told us a lot about God's design for marriage. Verse 3, let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. There is a duty because there is a need. And Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, speaks first and foremost of the husband's obligation to his wife. And this is, would be radical, um, and especially in, our, in the years past puritanical society where we wanted to act as though women had no sexual need, no sexual desire. And Paul is speaking of her need first. So this is elevating her, honoring her, and he's acknowledging what is true. I spoke this past summer, and as I have here at Bernie Bible Church, um, on the Song of Solomon. This summer I did it in camp with high school kids. Some of the ch- our kids in church were there. And it was deeply appreciated. Um, I couldn't believe how, really, how much it was appreciated. 
And I had kid after kid coming up to me and saying, no one has ever said these things to us before. And one of the main things I was simply saying is, sexual desire is not in itself sinful. You don't have to confess sexual desire. Now, lust is sinful. But you can have sexual desire without having lust. And so stop feeling guilty and stop beating yourself up for sexual desire. Jesus didn't say, anytime a man looks on a woman, he has sinned. He says, anytime a man has looked on a woman with lust, he has sinned. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Timothy says, don't put young widows on the widow's list. He says, because for very practical reason, they will make a, they, many of them have made a vow, apparently a vow to remain single, to remain celibate for the sake of devoting themselves to Christ. But as the time goes on, they will feel, he says, sensual desire in disregard of Christ. He doesn't say sinful desire. Sensual desire is not sinful. But he's just saying they would want to get married, but they've made a previous pledge not to get married, and so they're going to violate their pledge, and in that they're doing something that's wrong. Getting married is not wrong. It's the violating of their pledge that is wrong. But the, and, the, and, the, and the sensual desire is not wrong. This is what, see, some, some desires are inherently sinful. Homosexual desire is inherently sinful. Heterosexual desire is not inherently sinful. It is God's design for our humanity. It's what God intended. And that's why he gave us marriage. So that desire could be fulfilled in a way that is not sinful. And so in the context of marriage, it should be expected that those desires be fulfilled. The woman has needs and the man, the husband, has needs. And it is the husband's duty to fulfill those needs. And it is the wife's duty to fulfill the needs of her husband. So that duty includes sexual need. It's not limited to that, and that's the issue. Some would say, perhaps, you know, my, my only need is to put food on the table. It's amazing that these things have to be talked about. They just seem so obvious and so commonsensical. But they do have to be talked about. I have a friend, retired pastor, who spent the last 10, 15 years holding marriage conferences in developing nations, mainly in Africa. Marriage conferences to pastors in Africa. And he's told me that, that on more than one occasion over the years, pastors have asked him, is it okay for me to continue to beat my wife? And he's going, What? And because some of these men came out of Muslim backgrounds where your wife gets beaten and the Koran okays that. In fact, encourages that. And so they become a Christian and they don't know their Bibles very well and they continue to beat their wives. And so this pastor's going, I can't even believe I have to speak to that. And I can't believe that this is something that has to be spoken to. But it obviously does. Fulfilling sexual duty in marriage is God's design and God's will. I would add, so is living a sexually pure life. You don't get married and then throw sexual purity out the window. Pornography and all the abuses of that and all the perversions of that don't become okay because you're married. When we are married, we want to enter marriage sexually pure. And when we are married, we want to continue in sexual purity. And I sometimes wonder if a person has allowed pornography to control their lives, are they ever going to be fulfilled 
by their spouse. So if you want your spouse to do their duty, then you do your duty and keep yourself sexually clean. Because otherwise, you are not going to have your needs met. So this goes both ways. Though each has a duty to the other, we have no right to demand that the other person meet our needs. Paul's not saying, husbands, you can tell your wife, you need to fulfill your duty. He doesn't say that. He addresses the husband concerning the wife, and he addresses the wife concerning the husband. He doesn't give either permission to demand that their needs be met. And I think this is the biggest point of this. The message of the cross is what this whole book is about, 1 Corinthians. It's about the cross of Jesus Christ. The message of the cross extends to the bedroom. There is no place where the message of the cross does not apply in our lives. No place. In regard to the other, the message of the cross says, fulfill your duty. Love gives itself. Love thinks of the other person. Love regards the other person more highly than self. That is the cross. Also, in regard to yourself, the message of the cross says you cannot demand your own rights. Jesus did not demand his, and we cannot demand ours. The message of the cross extends to every aspect of our lives. Obviously, Paul is assuming here that everything is biologically, physically functioning as God designed. And we know there are times when that is not the case. And so, husband and wife are not able to fulfill that duty, and it's not because they don't want to. It's not because they're choosing some supposed higher spirituality just because they physically cannot. So we know that would not apply to them. In verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body. Really? The wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Now, there is a, a mutuality here. Some people are, are, are trying to look for a mutual submission between husband and wife on, on every level. And so this is the go-to verse for them because it does, in fact, speak of a mutual submission. Wife, your husband has authority over your body. Husband, your wife has authority over your body. He's speaking here in terms of sexual fulfillment. Um, obviously, it would extend to more than that. When people are not taking care of themselves physically... Have you ever talked to your spouse about that? And I know we can, we can be obsessive about health, about good health, about being in physical shape, all that stuff. But when one person is obsessing with good health or the other extreme, the other person is just, just giving up, are you considering each other? Because I know, you know, I've, I've seen a, an example or two where one person is just so devoted to being in shape, going to the gym, working out, and they are neglecting the other person. And that's not just men, women too. But there can be the other where, where a person just let themselves just completely go. Have you considered what your spouse thinks about that? The abortion industry, the feminist movement, would say 
that abortion should always be permitted because the woman has authority over her own body. Well, stick that into this verse. How does that work? You see, we know that that unborn child that she's carrying is not her body. It is in her body, but it's a separate person. Absolutely distinct in every way. Just happens to be located in her body. But it is an entirely different person. But even if it were her body, this says she does not have absolute authority over her body. The husband has authority. And in the same token, the wife has authority over the husband. I'll never forget that story of a former student. She told me that her dad had been unfaithful to her mother. The dad walked out. Mother was, the father was not a Christian. Mother was absolutely committed to their marriage, for better or for worse, till death do us part. And so even though she had been um, sinned against and, and, and had been abandoned, she wouldn't give up. And she came to this verse and said, God, this verse says I have authority over my husband's body. And I'm going to believe you for that. So God, I'm asking you, in the name of Jesus, make my husband fat and bald. <laughs> so that no one else wants him. And when he comes back, I'll take him back. Well, in very short order, that man got fat and bald. <laughs> and he came home with his tail tucked between his legs. And he gave his life to Jesus. And that family is still intact. There is authority, one over the other. Having said that, this does not undermine what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the same book, that the husband is the head of his wife, even as God is the head of Christ, and Christ is the head of the church. Stop depriving one another. Except, he's going to say three things, by mutual agreement, number one, so if a couple decides they are not going to be intimate sexually, they need to both agree to this. See, couples often don't even talk about these things. Clearly, Paul's assuming there's going to be good communication. Talk about it. So that's the first thing. Second thing, for a time, meaning it's temporary. And third, for the purpose that you might devote yourself to prayer. Mutual agreement for a brief time for the purpose of prayer. I can't think of many men coming up with this. <laughs> Honestly, I think this is a bunch of women in the church maybe that said, this would help my prayer life. That's, man, I, I could be wrong, but that's just me thinking there. It's not in the text. But Paul says, if you go beyond this, mutual agreement for a time, temporary, for the purpose of prayer, even in that, and he says, you open yourself up to satanic attack. Satan, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Abstinence in marriage is not God's design. Abstinence outside of marriage is God's design. So if you are not married and you are sexually active, you are not fulfilling God's design. If you are married and you are not sexually active, you are not fulfilling God's design. Both are sin. Abstinence while married is sin, unless there is some physical reason why it can't take place. It ought to be taking place. It is God's design, and Satan wants to destroy the design of God. How frequent? Paul doesn't say. There's nothing in Scripture that says that is something that has to be worked out with each couple. 
And it's not obviously going to be consistent from couple to couple or throughout even one couple's life. It changes. If I am the problem in terms of not fulfilling my duty, I open up both of us to spiritual attack and moral failure. God gives self-control. It is one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. God gives self-control, but God also designed that husbands and wife be enjoying each other in marriage. Sexually enjoying each other. So yes, God gives self-control, but I am not supposed to be stupid. God gives self-control, but that doesn't mean I walk through adult bookstores. Or watch movies that are explicitly sexual. or withhold in marriage. We must live according to God's design, or we do open ourselves up to satanic attack. I know of couples, nobody in this church, nobody in this church tells me these things, and that's good, probably. (laughs) I'm not asking for information, trust me. But I know of couples that have gone years, married couples that have gone years without sexual intimacy, and there is no physical reason why. I don't usually see those couples laughing, enjoying each other. I don't know how it got started. But I do believe that when we start down a road that is contrary to God's will, it becomes very difficult to correct course. You know how you've had relationships with people and you've gone so long without talking to somebody that that first encounter almost seems impossible. Why is it any different with marriage? You go so long without sexual intimacy, even the thought of it again. As much as you may want it, you know it should be, and that's what God wants. But neither person can seem to move toward it because they've gone so long. I think it's spiritual. I think Satan has gotten in the middle of that marriage. It is not what God intended. And at that point, you have to just say, It's not a matter of acting according to your feelings or your desires, but it's a matter of acting in accordance with God's will, regardless of how you feel. And you say, Jesus, I will obey you, even in this matter. This is not unspiritual. This is part of how the cross impacts our lives. It would be unspiritual not to move toward one another in faith and obedience. Why is it God's design to not abstain in marriage? Why is it his design to abstain when we aren't married? I mean, the world just goes, this is ridiculous. I just read an article yesterday that was on the Fox News website about an evangelical woman raised in an evangelical Midwestern community, and and she was just blaming that influence on on messing her up um, sexually. And And it was just tragic to read it. She's written a whole book about it now, and, and, and it was really being lauded on, on that website. Tragic. I believe that God has put these boundaries in place because, as we've already mentioned, there is something sacred about marriage and sexual union. And it is very much a picture of the relationship that exists within the Trinity and the relationship that exists between Christ and the church. And God has designed that that relationship be selfless, that we give one another, ourselves to the other without reservation, that it be filled with joy and pleasure, 
There is no more joy-filled relationship in the universe than the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the relationship between Christ and the believer is to model that, to experience that. That's just why Scripture said, Father, let them know our joy, that our joy might be made complete in them in John 17. And marriage is designed to be a picture of that joyful, selfless giving of yourself for the pleasure of the other that exists between Christ and the church and exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is absolute commitment in that relationship. And so the absolute most, most profound expression of intimacy, sexual intimacy, should be reserved for where there is the greatest commitment, just as exists within the Trinity and between Christ and the church. So that's why this is not to be our experience sexual activity prior to marriage because there's no commitment. And that's why it ought to be there in marriage because there is commitment. It is what God intends, and it is good. I say this quickly now, verse 6, by way of concession, not of command. What is the this? Not getting married... That's not what it goes back to, but it seems to be that there would be a temporary abstaining within the marriage. That's the concession. It is not a command that every person should pull apart from each other in marriage for the sake of prayer. You will pray better together when you are enjoying each other sexually. I almost wrecked the truck one day when I heard Alistair Begg on the radio preaching and I like him, enjoy hearing his message, don't hear him very often. He was preaching from this passage a few years back. And he made the statement, says, so many people think that sexual intimacy is the result of a good marriage. And he says that is exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying. He says, a good marriage is the result of sexual intimacy, not the other way around. You don't have sexual intimacy because your marriage is good. If you withhold yourself one from another. You open yourself up to Satan. You're in violating, a violation of God's design and you are hurting your marriage. You want to have a good marriage? Paul's saying here, live according to God's design and enjoy each other as God designed for you to enjoy each other. And your marriage will be the stronger for it. Your prayers will be better for it. Yet I wish that all men where even as I am, Paul was single. And so he says, singleness is a great thing. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. I appreciate it again. I read somebody, and I hadn't, hadn't seen this before, this thought, but he does, Paul is not saying here there is a spiritual gift of being celibate. He doesn't say that each one has his own gift. There is a gift of celibacy. Where, where this is a spiritual gift. What he is saying, I think, I think Paul's saying, is that marriage is a gift from God. And being single is a gift from God. That he is saying. But he's not inferring that if you are single, you are not going to have any sexual desire. Because we think the gift of celibacy means I just have no sexual desire whatsoever. And that's not what he's saying. But rather, whether you are married or single, each is a gift from God, and you should appreciate it and enjoy it within the design that God has created. And that's why, what's coming up, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I, remain single. But if they do not have self-control, in other words, you can be single, it is God's gift to you to be single, but you still have sexual desire which is not in itself sinful, but you can't get it under control. It seems to be dominating everything. He says, it's better to marry than to burn. I know we're out of time, but I, I would just emphasize that Paul is not saying burn means lust. I, don't, I, I know many people would say that they're equivalent. I don't see it. Because I go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and Paul says that we are not to acquire a wife in the way that the pagans do out of sexual passion, out of sexual immorality, I believe he says. 
that, there, that you, can, you can have strong sexual desire and not be sinning. Lust is sin. And lust is not going to be satisfied by sexual intimacy. We know that to be true. If you've got a problem with, with sexual impurity before you're married, you're probably going to have a problem with sexual impurity after you get married. Marriage doesn't cure all that. Marriage is meant and designed in part to prevent immoralities. It is not meant to be a cure if you already have a problem. But you know, you say, God, I love being single. I thank you for being single. I see that I'm more available to you. I can have more undistracted devotion. But I just can't keep thinking how nice it would be to be married. And maybe God has marriage for you. Having said that, we all know it's not in our control. And all you can do is put it before God and say, God, I'd love to be married. Thank you for the gift of singleness, but I, I can't just go out and find somebody. So, Lord, you know my desires and you know my needs. And I put myself in your hands for you to fulfill what you want fulfilled in my life. We live humbly and dependently upon him. So all said, this first paragraph, Paul is obviously saying marriage is God's design. And sexual intimacy in the context of marriage is very good. It's what he wants. And not to be living according to God's design, unless there is some physical problem, is to sin against each other and against God and to open ourselves up to spiritual attack. I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for speaking these things to us. And it's hard, Lord, to talk on these things, especially um, where there are young people present. But God, these are things that, that obviously you think we need to hear. So I pray, God, that you would just guard us, that we would not venture, especially as young people in the areas that you don't want us to go, um, but that we would just live in the truth as you have designed. I thank you for each marriage that's represented here in this body. And I do pray, God, for your great protection over them. We know the enemy wants to destroy those marriages. They are a picture of your union within the Trinity and of your oneness with the church. And the enemy hates all that. And I pray, God, that we would not underestimate the significance of something so simple as enjoying each other in the context of marriage as you have designed. And Lord Jesus, I pray for the singles that are here, and there are many, that you would be their strength, their joy, their peace. And as they live, God, thanking you for the gift of singleness and yet still having sexual desire, that you would truly bless them, keep them, and that they would live in purity, Lord, and trust you with all the longings of their hearts for marriage, for intimacy, and that they would find just great peace, Lord, as you keep them and bless them. And I thank you for each one of them. And the example they are to me of godliness and of trust. In Jesus' name, amen.